Um, you might have no idea who I am. You might be new. I just want to welcome you. My name's Paul. Um, my wife and I and the leadership have an amazing privilege of leading this congregation. We love it. We've been here since 2014, and we hope that God keeps us here for many, many years to come. Uh, we're going to get stuck into the book of Ezra and Nehemiah this morning, so turn there with me, and at the same time, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let me just give you a, a quick little three points or two points. Uh, firstly, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible is actually written as one scripture, so until, as, one, as one book. So until the 13th century, we spoke about this last week if you were here, but until the 13th century when it was translated into Latin, it was one, uh, one book. And the events that are happening are not sequential, so they don't happen. If you go and do like a timeline, you'll see that actually the author is jumping all over the place. So they're not sequential, but they are concurrent. So they're happening in the same time frame. So Ezra lives at the same time as Nehemiah lives, and Yeshua, and there's these other leaders that are, that are in there. All right, so last week I promised to start this week, and I'm going to fulfill that promise, with an apologetic around why the Old Testament why would we do a book out of the Old Testament? Because I was anticipating that in the room there would be some, not all, but there would be some who would be saying, couldn't we rather or shouldn't we? Wouldn't it be better if we did a gospel? Or wouldn't it be better if we did one of the epistles? I mean, what does this actually, is it actually relevant to our lives? Going and reading about Ezra and Nehemiah. And, you know, it's a legitimate question because when you go and see this book, it's quite strange. There's these guys and they're coming back and they're trying to build this temple. They're trying to like reinstate the Torah, which is the law. And then they like get all like angry at the end of the book because people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And Nehemiah literally goes around and starts beating people up. He actually starts pulling out hair. That's what it says. He starts going around and pulling out people's hair to try and force them to follow the Lord. So you're like, well, what in the world does that have to do with us today? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm going to do my best to give you some answers to that. And not just to Ezra and Nehemiah, to why we read the Old Testament at all. Why we should approach the Old Testament regularly. So we're going to 2 Timothy chapter 3, look at verse 14. It's a very well-known scripture. It's a scripture about scripture. Being, it's a commendation about scripture. But I want to give you a little bit of context. Timothy is a young man who's been mentored by a guy called Paul. Familiar with the Apostle Paul, right? So this is his protege, and Timothy is leading a church in a place called Ephesus. Now, if you go and look at the Ephesian church, you know the book of Ephesians? That's where it was written. Timothy is the leader. So this book that was written is to the, to the Ephesians. That church where Timothy is leading is pretty unhinged. It's quite a hardcore church. They've come from a background of satanic worship, from a whole lot of, of very difficult uh, worship places. And these are kind of the first generation of Christians who are getting put together in a room. So you're sitting next to someone who may have sacrificed a child, as an example. It's, it's hectic when you, when you think about it. We think of church like One Hope, Stellenbosch, here we go, we're on a Sunday morning, it's all like this. No, it's extremely different. Over here. And Timothy's trying to lead this church. They've got Jews and Gentiles put into this place, and they've always been this separate nation. They've been kept separate, and suddenly you're putting them together, and there's massive racial diversity going on among these people, and friction happening in the Ephesian church, and there's disunity and, and infighting. And so into this environment, Paul writes to Timothy 
And his express goal is to try and encourage him. He's trying to encourage him as he tries to hold this, this crazy church in tension and lead them forward in the ways of God. And so this is what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14. But as for you, speaking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from who you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God, that's the one you thought I was going for, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what is, what is Paul doing? He's saying, right, Timothy, you're leading, this, you're leading this church. I want to remind you to continue holding fast to the Scriptures. Keep holding as tightly as you can. Read them. Obey them. Be rooted in them. But he doesn't just say it like in the way we would, like we teach our kids. You know, just read the Scripture because, you know, a verse a day keeps the devil away. Or something like that that you may have been taught. This is no legalism here. This is Paul saying, he doesn't just say, read the Bible and keep reading the Bible. He gives him the why. He says, what does this produce? What does this do in you, Timothy? As you do this, as you are rooted in the Word of God, what does it do? And if you read those texts, you'll see seven, you'll see it for yourself, seven incredibly simple, beautiful things that the reading of the Word of God does in the hearts of those who are reading them. Look at it. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to, one, make you wise. Anybody want to nudge a husband, nudge a wife, nudge a friend? Don't you wish you had a little bit more wisdom on that financial deal you were making and you lost all our money? Remember that, y'all? Don't you wish you had... The Scriptures are able to make us wise. Then it says, the Scriptures are able to lead us to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You were lost. You needed saving. You were drowning. And the Scriptures are able to come. And through reading them, you're able to find salvation in Jesus Christ. And you put your faith in Him. The Scriptures are breathed out by God. In other words, man was writing them, but God was breathing on His neck. God was inspiring them. And they're profitable for teaching. Okay, what does that mean? Well, that means you're in classroom and your teacher says, today we're going to do algebra. You never knew about algebra before. And hopefully in about three years' time, you know about algebra. The Scriptures fulfill that teacher role in our life. We don't know something, and then they come and teach us something new. They're useful for reproof, which is another way of saying rebuke. So it's like, hey, stop! That thing you're doing is stupid. That's what the Scripture's role is, to come and speak over us and say, you being... There we go. It's rebuke. You don't sound like you believe you're being stupid. Say it again. I'm being... Stupid. Yes, I am. The scripture comes and shows me. It rebukes me. Then it's helpful for, it's useful for correction. This is where we've gone one degree off, and it feels so close. It feels so similar. But in 10 years' time, we're going to be 10, 15 degrees off and creating havoc. So the scripture comes, and while we're reading it, it's like a friend to us, and it corrects us. And then it's useful for training in righteousness. In other words, putting on the muscle. It's like the gym bunny. Scripture comes and trains us. It gives us popping biceps and hairy chests in the spiritual realm. Imagine if we could see each other spiritually. Wouldn't that be cool? Some of you with big fat bellies. 
walking around completely untrained in righteousness. Some of us with big fat bellies walking around with a six-pack. Yes, Jesus. (laughs) Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what leads a conversation around kin culture? What leads a conversation around orphans? What leads a conversation around education when we look at calling academy or cooler and and trying to integrate people into schools as we've been talking about in the last few weeks? It's not just the Bible says it. That's that's powerful, but that's, that's not simply what it says. The Scripture comes and equips us for good works. It comes and teaches us. As we look at it, we see the heart of God. And it's not primarily emotion that drives us to do those things, because that's going to stop. It's not primarily just feeling bad or guilt, because that's going to stop. If that's why you go and do it, maybe if you're really good at guilt, you'll do it for a couple of years, and then you'll stop. Scripture comes and equips us. But now here... Here's the shock, okay? So why are we talking about this, about Ezra and Nehemiah? Here's the shock in this passage. What scripture is Paul talking about? Is he talking about the black Bible on your bedside table or the other five that you have in your house? He's not. The gospels are not yet written. The epistles are being written, but they're just like letters. It's Paul writing to his son, Timothy. They're not scripture. So the crazy part of this thing that Paul is busy commending Timothy and say, cling on to Scripture. Look at it. Cling on to the sacred writings. All Scripture is... Be- What's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament. Now, we come with such modern eyes to that text, and we read it just assuming it's everything we know as the Bible. It's everything we know. So we think, well, let's go to the New Testament. And guys, I know there's people who are actively being encouraged not to read the Old Testament. It's craziness. When you read this, the second shock, that's the first shock, that he's actually talking about the Old Testament. And the second shock is what it is that Paul says that Old Testament can produce in you. The Old Testament will make you wise. The Old Testament can lead you to faith in Christ Jesus. What? How do you think the apostles argue for for the veracity of Christ? How do they argue? They go through the Old Testament and they argue and they show that Christ was going to be raised and that he was Lord of all, that he brings forgiveness of sin and that he was supposed to have been crucified. Not from Corinthians or Ephesians or any of our New Testament books. They're doing it from the Old Testament. That means that if we spend time thinking, meditating, chewing on, the Old Testament, it should produce the same things in us. It should produce righteousness. It should equip us for good news. It should, for good works. It should teach us. It should rebuke us. It should correct us. That's my first apologetic. My second one is this. It was the only Bible, it's so similar, but it's worth saying, it was the only Bible that Jesus himself knew. So there's this beautiful story in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus appears after he's been crucified, he's been resurrected, and then he appears to his disciples. But they don't believe it's, they, they're not sure. He says they're unsure. So in a beautiful act of grace, Jesus says to them, bring me some fish. Now what's he doing? They think he's a ghost. So they, he knows that if he eats something, they're going to realize, oh, he's not a ghost. Right? That's what's actually going on in that little passage in Luke 24. But then Jesus says these words to them in verse, chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words 
I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus is saying, I have fulfilled the Scripture. Now, if you look at that little law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, Jesus isn't choosing his favorite books. That's a Hebrew shorthand for the Old Testament, for saying the Scriptures of God, right? And then look at what Jesus says. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Which Scriptures? Old Testament. And this is what he taught them from the Old Testament. It's beautiful. This Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem and you are witnesses of these things. That from the Old Testament. So guys, if we have approached the Old Testament in some kind of notion that it's not for us, that it's a collection of stories that we relegate to our kids' church to teach them some moral uplifting lessons about how they can beat the giants in their life. If that's what we've reduced the Old Testament to, first of all, we are deeply contradicting the New Testament. We're contradicting the way that the New Testament was written and the way that the guys were using the Old Testament, but then it leaves us deeply impoverished. You can't get the big picture if you're only dropping in, parachuting in in the New Testament, and you're completely oblivious to the fact that it's been God talking for thousands of years, and this is just a fulfillment of all of that. So I want to encourage us this morning, as I try to convince us that the Old Testament is incredible for our growth, incredibly vital and valuable to cling on to and get stuck in and involved in. I want to encourage you, if you haven't done that, it's an opportunity this morning. Repent. And I mean that sincerely. Repent. Go before God and say, God, I am so sorry. This morning, your word, Timothy 3.14, your word has corrected me. Your word has rebuked me. I'm sorry. And then turn. And let's spend some of our time in the Old Testament so we can understand. I know it's scary. I know you dip into that story about like, you know, something terrible happening and everyone being slaughtered and you're like, oh, this can't be God. Oh, go back to the New Testament. I know that. But as you read, as you read the whole thing and you begin to get the scope of what God is doing in the Old Testament, you start to see the beauty. You start to see incredible beauty. Are you with me this morning? Are you excited for Ezra and Nehemiah? Are you leaning in, saying to him, Father, would you do these seven things in my life? Even as we study Ezra and Nehemiah, would you do these things? Bring wisdom. Bring me to faith and salvation in Jesus Christ. All right. You're with me. Okay, what I need to do now, quite briefly, is I want to just do a recap of last week. And this is actually not specifically for you if you weren't here, although it will help you. That's great. But this is also for those who were here because there's some really vital foundations here that we need to build on for the whole rest of our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. So I'm going to be very brief with it. But basically, I spoke under this one big heading, God's faithfulness in our sin. How God is faithful to us even though we continue in our sin. And we did an an overview of the book of Jeremiah. Why? Because Ezra starts off with these words. It was Cyrus, king of Persia, in his first year, and in order to fulfill the words of Jeremiah. Now, you don't know what's going on if you don't know what's happening in Jeremiah. Because if you don't know what's going on in Jeremiah, then you don't have a clue what Ezra means. So Cyrus is this king of Persia, and in chapter 1 of Ezra, he issues an edict. And the edict goes something like this, right? 
the people of Israel that we took into captivity, or the Babylonians took into captivity, they can go home to Jerusalem. They can return. And when they get there, they can rebuild their temple. In fact, I want you, in, his, in the heathen king's edict, he says, I want you to give them gifts to take with them to help them to rebuild their temple. And now Israel 1 is actually the fulfillment of the end of Jeremiah. Because the end of Jeremiah, the last 12 or so chapters, Jeremiah is saying that God is coming to visit judgment upon the Babylonians. That he's used them as a tool in his hand to beat the Israelites who've been unfaithful to God. But God is coming and he's going to destroy the Babylonians. So as you read there, ah, the Persian king in his first year rides into Babylon. What's happened? Jeremiah was right. The Babylonians have been taken out by the Persian king. And then I spoke to you last week about this concept of hyperlinks, and it's really important you get this for the series, right? And a hyperlink is you're reading an article, you're reading an academic article or anything like that, and suddenly you see a little blue link. And when you click on that link, it opens something else that helps you to understand the original article that you were reading, right? Now, the authors of Scripture do this the whole time. They assume a whole lot with a little hyperlink. So when he says... Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the words of Jeremiah, that's a huge hyperlink. When you click on that hyperlink, it's the book of Jeremiah. That's why we were doing it last week. And he's saying, if you get that, then this is going to make a whole lot more sense. Right? And so the authors of Scripture are doing this the whole time, these hyperlinks. And so for a reader who knows what Jeremiah says, this this act of Babylon being conquered by Persia activates Something in their mind. They go, ah, this means something. Babylon's been defeated as Jeremiah prophesied. Now there's a whole chain of thoughts and possible events that should begin to go in people's minds. There's four of them. We spoke about them in brief last week, but I want to see who can remember. There's four things that happen in the prophecy of Jeremiah. The first two begin with an R. The people, anybody? The people return. What's the second thing that happens? The people, when they return, they begin to? What? Rebuild. I'm hearing some, some people say rebuild. It's like some of them are running back into their notes. Good for you. So the people go back. They return. The exiles begin to rebuild. But then there's two other things that we haven't got to yet, and these are more subtle. But what happens in the prophecy of Jeremiah is that also this coming of the people back to Jerusalem activates a thought. It's the messianic age. We're close to the Messiah. And then it activates another thought. If that's the case, if the Messiah is coming, all nations are going to gather, not just the Israelites anymore. God's going to do something and all the nations are going to come back. Now, those four things are critical for you to remember as we go forward. Those four things are that the people of God are returning rebuilding, there's a messianic age, and all nations are coming to worship. And then there's, this was the, the highlight of all of what we did last week. The highlight is that right in the middle of destruction, devastation, Jerusalem being raised to the ground, right in the middle of that is chapter 30 to 33, and I asked you guys to go and read that last week. I hope you did. It's some of the most beautiful, hope-filled, they call it the package of hope, Right in the middle of this destruction and devastation in Jeremiah is chapter 30 to 33. 
in the midst of all this darkness, God says, I'm faithful even though you are so full of sin, Israel. And the take home for us is so clear that even in our sinfulness, God is faithful. Isn't that an amazing truth? Guys, isn't that an amazing truth? Hands up the sinners in the room. I mean, this applies to every single one of us. I don't even have to do any exposition. Like, I wonder who this applies to in the room. It applies to all of you. It applies to me. This is, this is Romans 5.8. But God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is faithful in our sin. And so today, I'm going to just do one more hyperlink because I don't want to take a million years. And I want to ask this question, is God's faithfulness forever? Is God a forever faithful God? God, will you be faithful over the long haul in my life? When I don't feel you, in other words, my subjective reality tells me that God is far, far away. And I haven't felt Him for a year. I haven't felt Him for 10 years. I don't know subjective reality. I want to take us this morning to the objective reality. That's what, that's what Scripture does. It takes us and says, no, it doesn't matter what you feel, Paul. It doesn't matter what you feel. God is faithful. And that's what we can cling to in those times. What about when you mess up? Maybe you feel that's another, ca- another um, category. What about if it's, if it's not just is God faithful? What about when I stuff it up? What about when I did this, the unmentionable sin, whatever that is? Is God still faithful then? So what I want to do is I want you to put yourself, so I'm asking you to imagine a little bit here. I know you can do it. I want you to imagine being part of that people that day, leaving Jerusalem. So you in this caravan of people, and you're busy walking out from Jerusalem, and you look back over your shoulder, and Jerusalem, precious Jerusalem, we don't quite get how deeply this is rooted in the identity of the Jewish people. But precious Jerusalem is burning. You look back and it literally flames and smoke and people pulling down the walls and pulling down the houses and they're making it a complete derelict wasteland. And in that moment, you know that there's lots of loved ones that you've left that are dead in that city of Jerusalem. And you're wondering about what is coming for you. Slavery? You're in captivity, what's it going to look like? And then in your head is ringing the prophecies of Jeremiah that God was going to do this, but you didn't listen. Now, what's the question in that moment, if you were there, what's the question going through your mind? God, are we ever coming back? God, will you ever forgive us? God, we we leave a temple behind that's been destroyed. We leave a holy city behind that's been destroyed. That's the only way we've ever known to worship you. God, will you go with us? Will you still be with us in a foreign land? In other words, God, will you be faithful over the long haul? God, will you be faithful forever? Or is this the end? Now, in that same crowd, I want you to think about People on these two polar opposite ends, on the one end of emotion or the scale of whatever the spectrum, of the crowd that's being driven before these Babylonian conquerors is a man or a woman or a child or a family or a group 
who are the innocent. Think about that. Not everyone was doing this. We know for a fact that Jeremiah wasn't. And yet caught up in this whole wheel of God's judgment against the people of Israel are these people who are completely innocent. What's going What's going through your head? These people who've been like trying to convince their neighbors, hey guys, listen to Jeremiah. Please listen to Jeremiah. You get the same exile. You get the same judgment. Like say what? You, you're definitely asking God, are you faithful? Are you going to be faithful? Because if I remember correctly, Lord, he said we're going for 70 years. He said we're going for 70 years, God, and I'm already 37. That means code for, I'm dying there. I'm not going to see this place again. God, are you faithful over the long haul? And maybe just, maybe, in our room today, we're asking those same sort of questions. I love that you spoke about, Agnes, about abuse and about the horrific statistics that are going on in our country. That means, you said it was, was a 30... 20%. So a fifth of our room, statistically, a fifth of our room has faced abuse of some kind. An, an innocent person in that train leaving Jerusalem. God, are you faithful? And some of us have faced abuse, and we, we carry the, the horrible consequences of something that we had no part of the evil of in our lives. And you've got to live with it maybe until the day you die. Maybe you look and you say, 70 years, and I'm going to be dead, God, and yet still I must carry this, the consequences into my marriage and into my children. Why, God, are you faithful for the long haul? Or maybe you one of the, the other side, and in that, in that caravan of people leaving that day, there were some who thought, this is God's justice and I deserve it. I'm the one. I'm the one who was worshipping foreign gods. I'm, I'm full of sin. I know they were all full of sin in, in that sense. But you know what I'm saying? So I think a beautiful picture here for us in our, our modern time is this image of marriage and, and, and faithfulness and the faithfulness that we call to in marriage and, and adultery. So maybe you're sitting... Because this is the image that Jeremiah uses. Adultery, promiscuity, and prostitution is what he says the people have done against God. I was your husband, and yet you are unfaithful to me. And so maybe in that crowd of people leaving, there's those who know they were unfaithful. And maybe sitting here this morning, there's those of us who are saying, God, but, but they, they, that my, my wife, my husband, they were unfaithful to me, God. Or maybe you're sitting this morning and you're saying, I was the one, God. I was, I was unfaithful. And I know that there's a whole bunch of you sitting here today who said, my parents, God, they were unfaithful. And so that leads us to a whole ton of questions because we then wonder, well, God, I, I couldn't do it. I said forever and I meant 20 years. I said forever and I couldn't fulfill my promise, God. I couldn't be faithful to the end. Are you able to, God? Or God, they said forever and they broke my heart and they ripped me apart. God, are you able to be faithful? Are you with me? Some of us carrying such deep shame, dark secret sin. Maybe you didn't even tell your husband or tell your wife about what it was you did. And you're living in that shame. And even though you know on some level if you're a Christ follower that you justified, still it's, it haunts you. You're wondering, God, will you ever restore me? 
God, will I ever have that nearness to you again, that sweetness that I, that I used to have as a teenager or as a young 20-something? God, will I ever have that again? God, will you ever forgive us? Can I, with that, with that ringing in our hearts and our minds this morning, turn with me to Ezra, and we're going to ask this question in the book of Ezra, is God a forever faithful God? I asked you at the beginning to turn to Ezra, right? So you should be there. Ezra chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. So this is in response to what we've been talking about, the story of Jeremiah, the king of Persia, puts forward an edict. In his edict, he says they can return, they can rebuild, and you must give them stuff as they're leaving, right? So in response to that edict, verse 5, then rose up the heads of the father's house of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them, in other words, their neighbors, aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. You got the picture? So you're about to leave, and you've got your Jewish family in tow, and you're packing your bags, and suddenly old Nathan and Mandy run out. They've been your great neighbors for the last 70 years, and they come out and say, guys, here's my golden candlesticks. Take them with you. Here's my cow. Here's my horse. Come, go, go. Take these things with you, right? Now, right there, as we read this, and this is the one major hyperlink I'm going to look at today, is a major, major, hey, stop. Click on this and go back. You need to understand something in the story. So let me ask you, church, can you think of another time somewhere in the Bible when God's people were in captivity? They'd been there for a long time. They'd been there for some time. And there was this oppressive king who had been over them. And then God moved in such a way that he set them free. And then he sent them on their way to another land, doing mighty works along the way. And then there's this one little clue here. As they left, their neighbors gave them stuff. Anybody remember that moment? Ring any bells? You know, maybe only the greatest story of salvation that the Jewish people had ever known. The Exodus. So then you've got to go in your mind, okay, hyperlink. Let's turn to Exodus. So keep one finger in Ezra and go with your other finger to Exodus chapter 12. And next week, bring your own Bible, right? That's great, but bring your Bible so you get familiar with the stuff. It's not hard. Genesis, Exodus, it's the second one. It's the second easiest one to find. So go and read in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 35 to 36, you'll see it says, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. There's some months I wish I could do this. Just go down my street in Longifolia and just ask people for their gold and jewelry. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sights of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Without lifting at this point a sword, they plundered the land and took it out. Now, what is the narrator of Ezra doing? He's deliberately, I mean, these guys, I was, I was watching a guy this week, Tim Mackey. I'm using loads of his stuff. He's brilliant. The Bible Project guy, if you've watched, he's, he's just unbelievable. He calls them literary ninjas. 
He says these authors in the Old Testament are literally ninjas. They're literally like, they're like so clever in the way that they're like, they put everything together. But what this narrator is doing is he's deliberately creating parallels in your mind and links to the stories that are foundational to the Jewish faith and therefore to our faith. That's what he's busy doing. He's depicting this return for the Ezra people, for the people in Babylon, he's basically saying to them, you are being invited on a new exodus. You, you're going on a new exodus. So let's, I want to show you another few, just so you don't think I'm taking it out of context and just giving this author a whole bunch of credit. He's not you. You remember like English lessons where you read a poem and the teacher's like, what did he really mean? And then you go and you like have to think about what this poet really meant. And most of the time I'm just thinking, I'm sure he didn't. I know he didn't. You've still got to write it in the exam, so you've got to pay attention. But just so you know that I'm not doing that, Ezra 1, go to verse 11. Look at the second part. So all the vessels, or the first part, all the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400, etc. And then the second part of the verse, when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Again, I just interrogate that a little bit. Who are the exiles? They're a group of people. They happen to be a group of Jewish people. Throw your mind back to Exodus. Who's the group of people? The Jewish people. Then they brought up from Babylon. What's Babylon symbolic of? Captivity, foreign land, exile. Where are they taken to? Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? Isn't it the capital of God's promised land? The same place the Exodus guys were heading? See what he's doing? When you read in Exodus 33, you'll see it even more clearly. Because in that little passage in Ezra, it's basically the entire story of Exodus, right? The exiles, under oppression, under the Babylonians, being released to go into their promised land. But when you read it in Exodus, and there's loads of places I could have taken you, this is one of the, the kind of key phrases in the book of Exodus. That there's a group of people who are brought up, this is the language, from Exodus, from Egypt like Cyrus and Cyprus again, from Egypt into a promised land. Exodus 33 verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people, you see it, the people who you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land, the promised land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. Now this phrase is repeated over and over again. And just to give you one more, let's look at one more. This one's quite beautiful. Ezra 2 and verse 68. As they come and they are now back in Jerusalem, this derelict city, they move back. Their first task is to begin building a temple. How do they do that? These people who've been in slavery. Well, some of the heads of the families, verse 68, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. So they start to just bring their stuff and give these free will offerings that the house of God could be erected back in Jerusalem. And then you look at Exodus, and there's, again, there's multiple references to this, but I went to Exodus 25, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel that they take up for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And then skip down to verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell in their midst. Do you see the, the parallels? The whole time there's Exodus, Ezra. And this is the idea that the narrator is activating is that he wants you and the reader to see that as they are packing their bags, as they are heading out of Jerusalem for this, it was a four-month journey, 1,500 kilometers, they are reenacting the Exodus. The people leaving Babylon are reenacting the Exodus. Now, can you begin to see the story of the question I'm asking, is God a forever faithful God? Is He faithful? Maybe this will help you. The time frame here from Exodus to Ezra is 900 years. 900 years after the original Exodus, God is inviting His people onto a new Exodus. And if you go and look in the Old Testament, you'll actually find this pattern repeating over and over. It's not, it's not exclusive to Ezra and Nehemiah. It's happening all over the place, right? And I'll take us there in a minute. But God, in His forever faithfulness, is inviting the exiles to see themselves as part of this new redemptive chapter in the biblical story. And let's just stop and make an observation here that no objective commentator, I don't think you could find one objective commentator who would read the scripture and say, you know what? God was wrong too. God should have abandoned Israel. Does that make sense? Let me say that the other way around. I don't think you can find any objective commentator who would say that God has every reason to not abandon Israel. He has reason and reason and reason and reason and reason as he's merciful and merciful and merciful. And yet he never does. To this day, God has not forgotten the Jews. He's not forgotten Israel. See, and this is, this is a pattern that the biblical authors use so often. They, they show patterns of God at work in story after story. It's like a righteous Mills and Boone, right? That's what, that's, it's like that. That's a, that's, that's a helpful way for, to help you remember it. It's like Mills and Boone's always the same plot line. You just insert name. I'm sure that's how they write them, you know. I don't read them. I just got told by uh, PD uh, <laughs> sitting on the front row. But it's like, it's like the story is the same. The story, it goes like this. Here's how the biblical story goes. Act one, scene one. God confronts injustice. Well, there's actually a scene slightly before that. The people are unjust. The people are, are neglecting the poor. They're worshiping other idols. Those are the two things that we saw last week that God holds up with such disdain against the people of Israel. Isn't that crazy? That one of them is that there's rampant social injustice. That's God saying, hey, 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 that nation is on its way down. So act one, scene one, the people again are up to their nonsense. God confronts it and calls out a man or a woman, a Messiah type figure. Think about it, Noah. Think about it, Abraham, David, Gideon, Deborah, Ezra, Nehemiah. What is God doing? The people have rebelled. They've gone again, unfaithful people. God raises up a man, raises up a woman, a messianic figure, and puts them over the people. Act 2, God frees his people. God frees his people, through one of these mighty acts of Samson or any of these guys. Act three, God invites these people into the biblical drama, says, come and love me. 
Come and serve me. Come and be my people. Act 4, the people rebel against God. Back up to Act 1. And the cycle of God's faithfulness is so incredible. Do you remember last week when we were reading in Jeremiah and the chapters of hope in chapter 30 to 33, right in the midst of this darkness, God over and over again begins to promise His people, I will not forsake you. Though you sin, I will not forsake you. Jeremiah 31 verse 13 Then shall, he's speaking about when the people have returned, when he's brought them back, he's prophesying that this is going to happen. Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them, give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the souls of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with the goodness with my goodness, declares the Lord. Now, any of you who, who know some of your Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah, doesn't this language just scream out at you? I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will turn their mourning into joy. Isaiah 61, the famous text about Jesus Christ himself. I have come, and this is what I want to do. I want to proclaim liberty to captives, those who mourn. I want to put an, instead, instead of ashes, I want to put a beautiful headdress on them. I want to give an oil of gladness instead of crying. I want to give them a garment of praise. Can you see where I'm going with this? Can you see the ultimate drama? Can you see the ultimate act one, act two, act three, scene one? Can you see what God is doing and where he's leading us, where he's pointing us towards? The story goes like this. God sees injustice upon the earth and God confronts the injustice and calls out a man. This time it's not a messianic figure. It's the Messiah himself. Jesus Christ. Act one. God frees his people. God frees his people. Act three, he invites them to be part of the biblical drama, to love and serve him as his people. Act four, though the people are still full of sin, yet God has changed something. He declares them just. He declares them righteous through the empowering of His Holy Spirit. He declares them no longer needing to strive and bring sacrifices because one has come who was the ultimate lamb. See, He leads me, me and you. I'm supposed to see, as I read in the Old Testament text, without becoming, I know I'm not the guy that's leaving Jerusalem, right? I know I'm not actually in that caravan of people. I can imagine it all I want. I'm not there. I can't read myself into that story, but I am supposed to see my life as another chapter or cycle of the biblical drama. Jesus Christ has invited you and I onto a new exodus. He's saying, I've set you free. I've destroyed. So while they, while they looked back and they saw Jerusalem burning, we look back over our shoulder and we see my sin, my, my death, my captivity, my, my captor. The one who's held me so tight in slavery. And what does God do as he, as he comes into this place? He, he brings a pagan king to release his people. Go, go. What does Jesus do? What does he come and do as we're leaving? 
Babylon and going home destroys it, destroys our sin. Is God forever faithful? Yes. Yes, 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 and amen, and yes again. How many times, guys, do we need Him to prove to us? Thousands of years He's been proving to us again and again and again, and He continues to do so today, that He's faithful. Whatever is going on in your life, whether present or whether you faced it in the past, whatever it is that you are facing, He will not fail you. God, but it might take 70 years. Yes, it might. I'm still faithful. God, what about my sin? I'm still faithful. Maybe you don't even know Him today. Here's the crazy part. If you don't know this God, He's inviting you to come on Exodus with us. As a community, He's saying, come join us. Come, come and give your life to Him. He's faithful. But I warn you about this every time I bring this call. He's also just. He's not going to wink at your sin. He's not going to say, ah, you know what? Just come along for the ride. There's a price to pay. He wants you, but he wants you properly. We're going to close in communion. Burn in, burn in, the, in the band. I like that. Burn in the band. Be in the bee. Once you come up, you're going to, I think we're going to close in a, in a hymn or a chorus, one of the two. But I want, to, I want to just do one final hyperlink as we close that's to do with communion. Ezra chapter 6 is the story of the completion of the temple. Don't worry about them. They're fine. Ezra chapter 6 is the completion of the temple. And do you know what the people do as they complete the temple? You can go and read it in chapter 6. They celebrate Passover. That's what they do. They celebrate the Passover. Now, Passover is so significant when you think about the Exodus story because it's the climax of God's freedom. God has been plague after plague after plague, and then suddenly God brings in the Passover this moment where He deals a death blow to the enemy, to Egypt. He deals a death blow to Egypt and sets His people free. And then He says to them, He says, I want you to teach this to your children. I want you to remember this. Remember this. And every year you celebrate Passover. You take some bread, you take a lamb, you take this drink, and you do it like this, and I want you to remember. Now the people of Ezra, they got it in Ezra chapter 6. As they rededicate the temple to the Lord, they take days to have a Passover feast together. And isn't it exactly the same as the Exodus that we've been invited to? This is our Passover. This is our Passover, the communion. As we come and we break bread and we take wine, what is it that Jesus said to us? Remember me. Remember me. I'm the new sacrificial lamb. They had to put a, a lamb's blood across the doorpost so that death didn't get them. Jesus says, I've done it. I'll put my blood on the doorposts. This is our Passover. This is our remembrance. And it's beautiful. There's a whole lot of stuff. Anyway, there's a whole lot of stuff in the book of Ezra, which just points in, in these Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Ezra, which points so incredibly to the Lord's table. But together this morning, we're going to break bread.
can we celebrate what he's done, the freedom that we have, the joy that we can find in the fact that he has put us on a new exodus. Come and let's take bread and wine together. Then let's stand to our feet. I'll lead us in communion. We'll close with a song and we're done.